I want to put up a PowerPoint here. It's of a temple called uh, Artemis, or the Temple of Diana. It's in Ephesus. And this is really a model of what it looks like. Pete, put up the other one. This is the remains that are still there today. And from the remains and what they could do, if you go back to the other one, Pete, again, they were able to build a model of what the original really looked like. Uh, just this amazing building in this town called Ephesus, which was dedicated to the goddess Diana, a Roman goddess. And this was the key building in the city. It was an imposing building in the city. It was the greatest attraction that brought people to the city, both worshipers and just the site of the building. And actually, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So that's how impressive this building was. And almost every commentary I, I have read about the passage we're going to share in a minute believes that this is the image that Paul had in his mind when he wrote to Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, and to the church of Ephesus and referred to this uh, pillar in support of the truth, that this is the image that he had in his mind, and this is the image he was trying to get people's minds to go to when they thought about who they are as a church. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and we're going to take a look at that. Just a little context again. Uh, Paul was writing Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. Uh, in this particular section, he tells him why he was writing. He was really writing so that they knew how they were supposed to conduct themselves in the household of God. And what he does is he uses this imagery here to help them understand what that is to be. So let me read 1 Timothy Starting in verse 14, he says this. I'm in chapter 3 again of 1 Timothy. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So I guess that's us guys. We're the church of the living God, the household of God. Then he goes on and he says this. I want you to note, he doesn't talk about a role that we're to carry, but he again defines, he starts by saying, conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Then he gives an identity of who we are, the pillar and support of the truth. The church of the living God, when you say, who are we? One of our key identities, uh, we are the pillar and the support of the truth. And then he tells us in verse 16, the common truth that uh, is the heart of everything that we are the pillar and support of. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh, we're talking about Jesus, now the truth, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. 
Then chapter 4, but. It's a key because it connects us to the thought. He's still building the same thought. He says, but. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We are the pillar and support of the truth in a time when people are falling away from the truth, believing the doctrines and the teachings of demons. And so that's who we are. God has placed us in this world. You know, a pillar, pillar of support, two interesting words here. They're similar, but they're a little bit there. A pillar is something that holds something up. And so again, we look back at that image of the temple. If you still have that minor, Pete, you can put that back up if you want. You know, we, these pillars are holding up the roof real high. And so everybody can see that. And so here the pillars are holding it up. A pillar is a support. It's a, uh, it's, it's a foundation. It's something that holds something up high. We see them at weddings, right? You put pillars, that, you put flowers on it, or you put other things. The pillar becomes a support stand to hold up something else real high for them to see. Now, the support is the same word for foundation. And you see at the bottom of this temple, the foundation that holds the whole thing up. And so that's what something stands upon. That's what gives it strength. And so as the church... You need to understand as the pillars of truth, we're the ones that hold up truth high in this world. We're the ones that are hold up truth way up real high, both for the world and in the church, so that everybody can see the truth of God. That's not just our role. That's not just something they do. That's part of our identity. We're the people, and by the way, church. He didn't say pastors. <laughs> church. That's the people of God. Every one of us has got that identity at the core of our being that God has chosen us to be the people to hold his truth up high in the world. And as the support of truth, we're the ones upon which the truth is, I like to think of a plumb line because when you put down a foundation it, it, obviously, if you had a, a round foundation, you have a round building on top of it. If you have a square foundation, and depending how long it is, where it's at. So the foundation is the one that gives structure to the rest of the building. And I like to think of the idea of being the support of truth, that we're the plumb line that keeps it straight and stable in the midst of a world that is going crazy on truth. And by the way, let's say a world's going crazy. It's been going crazy since day one. Uh, today, it's certainly uh, getting worse and worse, but the world has always been at odds with God's truth, and we are the people who hold it up high in the world. We're the ones to see to it that it stays straight and stable in the midst of the world that we live. So when we want to deal with truth, we've seen in our series so far, God himself is the truth. 
He has chosen to reveal about himself and what's true in this book. He tells us the Bible is truth. So when we start to deal with truth, we have to deal with this book. We saw the last two weeks when people try to undermine Christianity, they always start by trying to undermine this book because if they can undermine the book, Christianity falls because now we have no foundation of truth to stand on. And so what I want to do today is a little bit different. We've been talking about what truth looks like, what is truth, and the defenses for the truth, and the Bible is truth. This morning, I want to give you tools by which you can find the truth for yourself in God's Word. Warning. My wife, she's always honest with me about my preaching, so she doesn't always tell me it was really good. (laughs) <laughs> she said last week, you know, Pat, that didn't sound like a sermon to me. It sounded more like a classroom. And I said, baby, it was. Sometimes we need that. And this morning, I, I guess I'm going to warn you before, you're going to feel like you're sitting at Moody Bible Institute today. So consider a free class from Moody you didn't have to pay for. Matter of fact, is Moody still free to its students? I don't know if they have to pay for it either. But uh, consider it like that. But trust me. The tools you come out with today will be major to help you understand the truth and to guard you and help. And what we're going to talk about this week and next, we're going to help you be pillars of the truth to put the truth on display around us. So what I want to do today is much like 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. When Paul said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. My goal this morning is to help you understand how to accurately handle the word of God. Not only so you don't have to be ashamed before God or anybody else, But brothers and sisters, when we handle this book accurately, we then have something we can build our life upon that is real. And and when I say it, let me say this, you know, because when we do it inaccurately, guess what happens? And we see people doing this all the time. Well, the Bible says this or that, or, you know, and that isn't really what it says. So they're building off their life over assumptions of what the Bible says, taking things out of context, seeing it through their lens, Um, taking promises that were really given to Israel or to somebody else and apply for ourselves. When people start to do that, guess what, guys? We're not actually accurately handling the Word of God. And now we got a myth in our minds saying, well, I'm believing God's Word when I'm really just kind of believing something that I kind of like to be God's Word. So bear with me this morning because my assignment by the time we get done, is to give you some tools and understanding by which you can begin to come to this book and discern what did God really say. This is my goal today, guys. Help us know how we can get to the 100% pure, organic Word of God. So let's start. The goal of this process is exegesis. That's a big word. But I'm going to tell you in a minute what that means. But why it's so important to get our goal right is this. Have you ever heard of a successful failure before? 
This is a successful failure. It's somebody who succeeds at what they're doing, but they're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, you've been climbing the ladder of whatever, and you get to the top of the building, and all of a sudden you look at the top, and all of a sudden realize I'm at the wrong building. And what many people are doing with Bible study is, is that they've set the wrong goals with what they're trying to do. Therefore, they become successful failures. They may become good at what they're doing, but they're really not hitting the goal right. Let me tell you the goal. There's two words they use in contrast to one another to help us understand the difference. One word is called exegesis. The other word is called eisegesis. Now, simple way to remember that ex in the Greek means out of. Ice in the Greek means into. And so we're going to see in a minute that exegesis is taking out of the word the 100% pure organic word of God it's coming out of. Eisegesis is when I read into the word my thoughts, my frameworks, my theologies, my whatever. You following me? So this is exegesis. Exegesis, again, the truth comes out of God's word. And the first question I ask is this. What did this text mean to the original author when he wrote it? That's got to be the first question. And you'll see why here in a few minutes as we build on. But the question of exegesis is always, what did the author mean when he wrote this book? What did he want to say? I think the best definition of exegesis I ever heard came from Vic Pertillo, a back row Baptist in the very last row. Vic, raise your hand up there. We're doing Bible study together and we're trying to understand uh, this whole process of exegesis. And Vic said, oh, you're saying it's seeing the text from the author's point of view. It's exactly what ex that's, I mean, I've been classes, read books. That's the best definition I ever heard, Vic, when you said that that day. It's seeing the text from the author's point of view. What was he trying to say? Now, eisegesis is this. It's just the opposite. It's reading into. And guess what the first question somebody asks when they're doing eisegesis? What does it mean to me? Many Christians today, that's where they start with Bible study. What does it mean to me? Now, that's a great question to ask, but it's too early in the process to ask that question. Remember, it's a question we must ask, and we'll see in a few moments, but it needs to be asked in the proper order. And so when the first question I ask is, what does it mean to the author, then when I come to what does it mean to me, I have an anchor and I got a groundwork that, that keeps me in the ballpark of what it's actually saying. Word Partners, uh, we, many of us know them as Leadership Resources, uses this illustration, which they call staying on the line to illustrate this point. Now, the line is what God actually says. You see the line there? That's the 100% pure, organic Words that God intended to speak through his word. Now, when you go above the line, you're adding to what the Bible says. And now you're not just dealing with the 100% pure word, 
but now you have added some things to it that the Bible really doesn't say, and that we usually find in the context of legalism, where they start putting all kinds of more things upon you uh, that the Bible never really said. Now, when you come to the Bible and you go below the line, you're not saying everything that the Word says. You're leaving some things out. So when you go above the line, you're adding some things to the Bible beyond what it said. When you go below the line, you're taking some things out of what the Bible says. And our goal is to stay on the line. I was thinking this morning, how do I illustrate this? What, what Milk, skim milk, what do they do? They take some of the fat out of there as much as they're taking something out of the milk. What happens with enriched milk? They're adding in vitamins and stuff and calcium to try to give you the extra stuff. We don't want to enrich the word. We don't want to skim the word. We want the 100% organic word of God, what God is saying. It's kind of like when we go and we take the oath before uh, you, you do jury duty. I swear to tell the truth. That's the line, 100% truth. The whole truth. That means I'm not leaving anything out. Nothing but the truth. That means I'm not gonna add anything to it. You see, our goal, when we come to the Bible, needs to say, I wanna find out exactly what God said. That's exegesis. And that's where we start. And, and the whole foundation to exegesis is a thing that's called inductive Bible study. Let me define it like this. Inductive is like a doctor. And you're sitting in the room, and what does the doctor, you walk in, and by the way, uh, the text is the patient. The doctor is the um, Bible student, Okay the one who's reading the word. Walk in, what does a good doctor do? He starts asking questions. Well, what's going on? What are your symptoms? Maybe we need to do these tests. And they try some things and they start with, I gotta find out all the facts I can about what's going on in this person's life before I give a name to what's going on. That's the interpretation. What do they do once they have a name to it? Well, this, we need surgery, you need to take this medicine, you need to do this physical therapy, you know, add it, whatever the bank, that's the application. Now, brothers and sisters, so many of us try to start with the application. What kind of doctor would you be dealing with if you walked in the room and they didn't even know what's going on? I said, we're assigning surgery to you tomorrow. Wait a minute, you don't even know what's going on. You see, and that's what so many of us do as Bible students. What's it mean to me? I'm starting with the application. And I never ask the hard questions that say, what's going on in this text? And once I do the test and ask the questions and get the answers, then I know what's going on. And once I know what's going on, I can make an ample. Does this make sense? This is what the duck. Now, here's what um, that's inductive. This is what deductive does. Deductive and uh, for my lawyer friends in here, uh, give me grace. This is for the court assigned uh, lawyer, defense lawyer to somebody who everybody in the world knows they're guilty, okay? 
What do they do? They start with the presupposition this person's innocent. And now they use the facts to uh, try to prove a case that my person is innocent. And so rather than starting with, let's find out what really happened, uh, like a doctor, and then we can name it, and then we can, they start with the fact, this is what really happened, now I'm gonna use the facts to prove that. Let me give you a chart that kind of shows you the difference between the two. Induction starts with the facts, and goes for the conclusion. What does deduction do? Starts with a conclusion. And then it interprets the facts in light of the conclusion they started with. Let me give you another way to illustrate this. This uh, comes again from Word Partners. One of the reasons we've had such a close relationship with them over the years is because they go around the world teaching pastors to try to do the kind of things we try to do here at Moraine. So we love what they do. And uh, they, they call this principle, the text is always king. The text is king over framework. What's the text? Uh, the text is the Bible verse that I'm trying to study or the paragraph or the book or the whatever. So here's the text from the Bible. Framework? Framework happens to be the lens that I see life through. That lens could be developed from the household I grew up in and what my parents taught me. It can be shaped by the culture that we're living in, by the schools you went to, the churches you grew up in, you follow me? And so now we have a paradigm, a way of thinking about life and scripture and God that starts here. That's our framework. And the principle is very simple. The Bible must shape our framework and our framework cannot shape the Bible. In other words, people come and they come with a lens of uh, you know, current culture and they look at the Bible through that lens and now they interpret everything in the Bible through that kind of thinking. But what I understand and what inductive study does is guess what? I let the Bible interpret the culture. And now I start with the Bible and my understanding about the culture comes from the Bible rather than my understanding of the Bible coming from the culture. I think all of us, we need to understand that we all have a framework because we're, we've all grown up in this world and we all have different frameworks which we start with. Here's the important thing. We have to be aware of it and acknowledge it. It isn't that anybody comes with a pure mind to the scripture. <laughs> we all have got our backgrounds, our education, our culture, our experiences, our whatever that shape us. But if we're gonna be good Bible students, we need to be able to say, God, I'm aware I have that, May I hold that with an open hand when I come to Scripture and may the Word of God sanctify and transform and make my framework more close to your Word rather than trying to use your Word to prove my framework. Here's a visual illustration of the same thing. Framework, this is what many people do. 
they bring their framework, they take you know, where they're already at in their mind and they put it upon the text and they let their framework shape what the truth says when the reality is, and that's the next one, we need to let the text be king over our framework, let it sanctify and transform and change and bring our way of thinking more in conformity with that line, which is the 100% pure organic word of God. So exegesis is our goal. What did the author say? How do we do that? We do it through inductive study where we start with trying to see what it actually says, then moving to interpretations and then applications being fully aware that our framework could tempt us to go a different way. So let me give you the last part. The three pillars of inductive study. Exegesis is the goal. See it from the author. Inductive study is the way we do it. We start with the facts. We go to the conclusions. Now here's the three pillars of inductive study. Observation, interpretation, Application, observation, what does the text say? Interpretation, what does the text mean? Application, how does the text relate to me? Now you notice there's an order to these three. What many Christians do today is we start with the last one, application. What does it mean to me? And we really can't know what it means to me till I first know what it meant to the author. And I don't know that until I first know what the text really says, what it means, how it applies. Let me illustrate that observation. You can leave that up there, Pete. I think we can leave that up there for a while. Observation simply means I'm going to saturate myself with what the text says. I'm going to find every detail I can find, every observation I remember taking Bible study methods in seminary. And to teach us this, uh, had Dr. Howard Hendricks. Many people are familiar with him as a speaker. His love and his strength, greatest strength was Bible study methods. He loved to teach that. So I'll never forget when he was teaching us about observation, the first assignment he gave us is go home and find 50 observations from Acts one Eight. I mean, that's um, one verse. So going home, I mean, I got to the point, the third word is the. You know, I mean, that's where I was at. God, we got back to class, sweated blood to find 50 observations that were fair to the text. And his homework assignment is go home and find 50 more. Guys, observation is when you're staring at this fish. <laughs> And you're looking and saying, you're, you're seeing, oh yeah, they're this color. And my, my poor kids, they had to put, I don't know if any of them are here today, put up with this, you know, I put a pencil on the table. Give me as many observations as you can. Tell me we're at a campfire. Okay, look at the fire. Tell me what you see. Give me as many observations as you can. You know, we got to look and keep looking and note there's heat, there's color, there's up and down, there's different, you know, you keep on going. There are so many things in the text. And like a good detective... We're searching the room of the text and we're looking real close to say, what is every clue that I can find in this room 
that will help me find out exactly what this text says. We start by saturating ourselves with the text. You know why this is important? Because if I don't have the right observations, what's going to happen to my interpretation? I'm going to make a poor interpretation. And if I make a poor interpretation, what's going to happen to my application? I'm having an inaccurate application. So everything begins with observation. We got to take some time to stop and say, what is actually here in the text? I got to look at this like it's a fine piece of jewelry or a diamond or a gift. And it is a precious gift from God. And I got to saturate myself finding what it says. Then we move to interpretation. What does it mean? You see, once we have all the facts in hand, now we can say what it means. I've got like that doctor. They've done, they've done the questions. They've done the test. They've done the different tests. They've looked at it. They put their hands on it. They say, okay, this is what all this means. It's like the CSI room. It's like the Sherlock Holmes. They got all the clues. And now they, it's that time when they put the pieces together. And what normally happens is this. The facts themselves, the clues themselves, normally make the interpretation obvious. And if they don't, they normally put you in the ballpark of a good educated guess so that I know I'm in the ballpark. And so this is the process where I'm taking all the pieces of the puzzle. <laughs> okay, I got, I got a 100-piece puzzle. Got, those are my observations. And I noticed that the end of this one is red and it's got a, kind of like a square sticking out. The end of this one is red with a square open. And guess what? Now I know that piece goes into this piece. And now I'm taking all these pieces, I'm putting them in together. And you know what happens is I get more and more pieces. The picture becomes clear. And that's what I'm doing with my interpretation. I've taken the facts from the text and I put it together. And then finally, now I ask the question, what does it mean to me? You see, the goal of application is this. For years, I missed this. I thought I was doing real good with Bible study because I'd kind of do the observation. I would do the interpretation. Then I'd think, here's four practical ways you can do this. And you know what, guys? That's not application. You know what application is? It's actually living out the truth. I remember Howard Hendricks with his class when he was teaching us about application. He took us to the passage and says, go to the ant, old slugger, and observe her ways. You know, I talked about uh, being diligent versus being lazy. He says, I want you to practice this for two weeks and then write a paper on it. And I'll tell you what, that was a great experience because, you know, at the start, I said, I'm not going to be lazy. And so oh, I'm really going to work on being, so I'm really being, and I'll tell you what, man, I wore myself out. <laughs> And I'm like, oh my goodness, is this really what it's saying? And all of a sudden you begin with experience as you take the truth and you try to walk with it and experience it. Guess what happens? Now the truth turns into wisdom because knowledge is just knowing the facts. Wisdom is the skill to take those truths and apply them to life exactly the way they're supposed to happen. And so when you start to actually live out the truth, you become a wise person because over time is you don't just give, well, here's six ways I can apply it. Now I'm a practical person down to for the next week or two, I'm going to try this truth out 
and I'm going to see how it happens, and I'm going to learn from that, and I'm going to get better at it. That's the goal of application. You know, when I was thinking about this, and again, you see why now, when you start with this question, that you don't start with application, you start with observation. But many Christians really look at the Bible like it was modern art. And I get nervous because I've sat in classes, I've been in small groups, and you would think you're looking at a piece of modern art. And you know what you do with modern art? You don't ask yourself, what did the artist mean to communicate through this picture? You know what modern art says? What does the picture mean to me? <laughs> and so you can have 100 people in the room, and well, that, that picture means this to me. And that picture stirs up these emotions. And when I look at this picture, so now suddenly you got like 100 different definitions about what that piece of art means because that's acceptable in modern art because that's what they do. But that's not acceptable in Bible study. And so many Christians, so many small groups, so many classes I go into and I listen, I go, the place they start is, well, what does that mean to you? Because, well, you know what it means to me and this is what it did, this and that. That's the last question because, guys, we said it and I'll say it again. The farther off your observations, the farther off your interpretation, the farther off will be your application. And if I start to try to apply this text and say what it means to me before I knew what it meant to the original author, I'm going to end up in all kinds of craziness. I'm going to start applying passages, a scripture that were never intended for me, and I'm going to say, well, this doesn't work. God's not faithful. He said he would. And he said, did he really? He promised that to Israel, not to you. If I want to say, we've got to handle the word of God accurately, then we can build a life on scripture that I know is dependable and will really work. Turn to Matthew chapter seven. I want to close there. Matthew chapter seven, you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus closes with this. And I love this. He's closing a sermon with what? Application. <laughs> okay, guys, you're going to take these words and live them out. You're going to have a great life. And so what he does, he uses this illustration to show the difference between people that hear his words and act upon them and people who just hear his words and don't act upon them. Maybe at best to write down four practical ways I can apply today's sermon rather than going home for the next four weeks trying to apply today's sermon. You follow me? So this is what happens starting in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. And let me start. I'm just going to say this again, guys. I don't think I say it more. These words of mine. We need to be careful that the words we're going to act upon are the words that this book said. That's why we need to handle it accurately. We get discouraged when we handle it inaccurately and we try to act upon words that are really not here. And so when I come to this book and I'm seeking what God has to say, and now I know this is what, and that's what I love about this, this kind of study moved me to a place of conviction. Because now I know this is what God is saying. It isn't just what I think or you think and who's got the best ideas or a group agreement. 
Now, when I come to it this way, I can say, this is what God says. And now I move to conviction and excitement. And I know why I believe what I believe. There's voltage power to that. Because I know this is what it says versus I think or I hope or so-and-so said it in a sermon last week. So, therefore, when everyone hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Brothers and sisters, when we approach God's word and we seek to say what God is trying to say to us and we seek to put it into action in our life and what God says about something, it's stormproofs. I got a brother, a couple brothers live down in Florida and they, they've got some condos and they're hurricaning. They're putting in hurricane windows and doors now. They're, they're demanding the whole places because you know what? There's been hurricanes that have gone through before and they've blown out the windows and destroyed the houses. So they're saying, we're done with that. Everybody's got to get one of these. And so when we put this kind of truth into action by applying it to our life, we stormproof our marriages. We stormproof our relationships. We stormproof our parenting. We stormproof our conversations. We stormproof our thoughts. We stormproof our attitudes. We stormproof our sexuality. We stormproof our finances. The list goes on and on because God's word is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. And when we go to this book and see what God says about truth and we put it into action, guys, this is a truth that we can really rely upon. We can build our lives upon it. We can stormproof our lives. That doesn't say it doesn't mean the storms won't come. But it was today is when the storms come, you'll be able to stand. Brothers and sisters, we are privileged to live in a time when we have the complete revelation of God's word in our hands that we can study and we can build our lives upon and actually build it into our lives. I'm excited next week to finish this series on how do we tell others about God's truth? How are we faithful in taking what this says and communicating to others, whether it's from a pulpit, whether it's a classroom, whether it's a small group, or whether it's friend to friend with another believer or a lost person. How can I take God's truth and communicate to others in such a way that'll carry all the power of a double-edged sword that pierces as far deep as the division of the soul and the spirit, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Guys, thank you for bearing with me in this kind of classroom stuff, but uh, I, I can't think of anything more important because I can give you a message on truth, 
But if you don't know how to find the truth, uh, it's not gonna help you. My goal today hopefully was to help you with some tools to be able to come to this book, open it up, know what is God's truth and build your life around it. So Father, I just pray that you would take the things that were shared today. Would you help me? Would you help us at Moraine Valley become people who handle your word accurately as people that don't need to be ashamed? And Father, I pray even more so that when we do that, that we can build our lives around it with really applying it. And Father, that we can be people who, like next week, we're gonna be the pillars that hold it up high. Lord, how do we bring it to others? So Lord, thank you for this holy book. Thank you for this supernatural book, this book that is God-breathed, that has your very words spoken through human authors. Thank you, Father, so much for that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.